Well, good morning, everyone. And thank you to Audrey and to the team for leading us through singing there. I'm always grateful and thankful that we have volunteers who will give up time and sleep and sacrifice and come and lead us. Uh, They don't just arrive five minutes before we all arrive on a Sunday morning. The team is often here sort of between eight and nine in some cases uh, and practicing and then often on Thursday nights as well for rehearsals and getting everything ready. And they are like you and I, regular people who have regular lives and regular jobs. Uh, and so I'm always thankful and grateful. And I had no intention of doing this, but because we're honoring them and acknowledging them, why don't we give the worship team a hand? Not to tell them how wonderful they are, but to thank them for... And if you are on the worship team and you weren't here this morning, that applause was for you as well. I know you're out there, and we are grateful for you. This morning, as we continue in the book of Luke, This past week, I had one of these experiences uh, with my family, and I've asked their permission if I could share this this morning, and they all said yes, begrudgingly. But this past week, we were driving along, and it is not uncommon in our household, or when the four of us gather together, it is not uncommon for one of us to blurt out, would you rather, and then we give option A, Or option B, would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And I know some of you have probably done that with your family or with a spouse or with someone as well. And so in our family, it's no different. Would you rather? In fact, occasionally we call them Dylan questions. Because when we were kind of introducing Dylan to this idea of would you rather as a youngster, uh, he just had so much fun with them. And he would ask these questions of would you rather all the time. Uh, and he was still learning. So every now and then he would ask some real humdingers. Uh, my favorite would you rather question to date from my son is, Dad, we were driving the car, said, would you rather get killed by a shark or a bear? <laughs> and, and he pressed me for an answer. And I know you're all wondering, well, Brian, would you rather get killed by a shark or a bear? You think about that for a moment. Uh, I opted for the shark. I figured maybe it would be a quicker death because I would probably drown. But anyway, so we're driving in the car and and I'm kind of, it's raining, it's cold, it's miserable, it's wet and and I'm driving along and I'm pretty sure the reason for the question popping in was because I didn't want to be where I was right at that moment. And I kind of thought, where would I rather be? So I said to the kids, hey, hey, would you rather, option A, would you rather be in New York City watching a Broadway show or option B in Los Angeles at Disneyland? And before I could finish option B, my wife broke all the rules, which just goes to show when you give a woman two options, she will pick C every single time. Because before I could finish option B, she gave in option C. And I know some of you thought, Brian, you're horribly sexist by making that comment right there. No, not at all. I want to honor my wife because she's the smart one. We're driving in the rain. It's cold. It's freezing. And I want to be in a show at New York or in Disneyland. And Cindy pipes up, or would you rather save that money and put it towards a holiday in Mexico at the beach? (laughs) Of course, you can guess what the kids chose. But that's against the rules. There are only two options. Now you might ask, well, Brian, where's this going? As we continue in the book of Luke, this morning, 
We are going to be faced with two options when it comes to Jesus Christ. And we just sang about it in that song right now. That every heart would declare Jesus as Lord. Jesus only gives us two options. You either accept Jesus Christ as Lord and you live for him or you reject him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral sitting on the fence going, yeah, okay, that's for you people and I'm not interested. No, that's the choice. That's the rejection. And Jesus says, you have two options when it comes to me. You are either for me or you are against me. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We're continuing in our series through the book of Luke. And as we continue in Luke 11, reading from verse 14 to verse 32, a little bit longer than than normal. Uh, It'll be up on the screen as well behind me. And so you can follow along as we read that. Luke 11, verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom 
And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Before I dive in and look at the themes that come out of this passage, there's a brief outline that we see from these verses. Verse 14 begins with Jesus performing a miracle. Jesus drives a demon out of this man, a a mute demon, and gives him back his voice. He's able to speak. There's one sentence summarizing the whole event. There are no details really for us other than a man who is demonized and cannot speak. And Jesus releases him and heals him. In the next couple of verses, uh, the rulers debate the source of power. And of course, they don't like the acknowledgement of it coming from God. So they claim, no, this is not God. This is Beelzebul. This is Satan. And of course, Jesus quite naturally and logically points out that any house, any kingdom, any power that is divided against itself, even for a show, will not last. And so if Satan is divided against Satan, well, his kingdom won't stand. And to make matters worse, not only will that person who has been set free end up in a worse state as that demon comes back. And so as they're discussing this and as somebody shouts out about blessing and this woman crowd in the crowd says, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and blessed is the mother who nursed you. We have to remember Jesus is speaking to a a people who highly valued family ties. Uh, Their genealogies guaranteed that they were a part of God's chosen people. A man's value, in essence, came from his ancestors, and a woman's value came from the sons to whom she gave birth. And of course, Jesus responds, he goes, no, 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 it's not about genealogy. It's not about claim to our name or anything like that. Uh, Who you are and where you come from doesn't matter. You're blessed if you obey the word of God. And then in both verse 16 and, and duplicated in verses 30 to 32, there's this image of people asking for a sign. And Jesus says only one sign will be given, and that's the sign of Jonah. And of course we go, well, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, the sign of Jonah is quite simply, as Jesus says, the call to repent. And yes, there's the biblical image as well of how Jonah was swallowed by the whale and in the, in the belly of the beast and again spat out. And Jesus is alluding to the fact that one who is greater than Jonah is here. And in the same way, this one will be swallowed up by death, but not held because he will come back to life again. And then verses 33 to 36, which we'll tackle next week, Jesus wants people to pay attention to the spiritual advice that they take in. And as I read through this passage from Luke, and as I, as I read this record of Luke, who, as we discovered through our journey through Luke, is making a study of who Jesus Christ is so that he can present Christ, I see two themes, and one that naturally flows from the other. The first theme, the, the, the main focus of this passage is the authority of Jesus Christ. Just who is Jesus and who does he think he is and where does he get this authority to be able to do and say what he says? And then the following, or the follow on from that is, how do I respond to the authority of Jesus? The authority of Jesus and then what is our response to the authority of Jesus? Let me look at the authority of Christ 
for a few moments. It's a prominent theme throughout the Gospels and indeed throughout the whole New Testament. The crowds marvel at Christ's authority all the way from the beginning of his ministry. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 27 we read, They were all amazed and they questioned amongst themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. As the crowds looked at Jesus Christ, as they saw the miracles, as as they saw what he was doing, they marveled because they hadn't seen anything like this before. And immediately they understood there is authority to what Christ is doing. But not only to his actions and to what he does, it was his teaching as well. In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And this is why the Pharisees would question his authority. And they go on in Mark chapter 11 and Luke chapter 20. In fact, Luke 20 verse 2, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. They said, who gave you this authority? And I love Christ's response in that moment because Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question, but first let me ask you a question. And he turns it around and he says to them, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? And the Pharisees begin debating and they realize that, well, they didn't believe the baptism of John was from heaven. They believed it was just a man. But they knew that the crowds thought that John was a prophet. And they knew that if they say what they think, the crowds are going to go wild. So they simply look at Jesus and go, well, we don't know. And Jesus sees right through them and says, well, then neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. But he doesn't need to tell because it becomes evident that Christ's authority has been given to him by his father. You know, the same Pharisees who questioned the authority, whenever a Pharisee, whenever a scribe, whenever a teacher of the law would speak, they would always point back to teachers and speakers before them. And so they would say, well, according to so-and-so, this is what this passage means. They would never simply speak on their own accord. Yet that's exactly how Jesus spoke. And of course, why not? Because John introduces Jesus as the very word of God, as God himself. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus comes and speaks and gives authority, sorry, has authority because it is given to him by his father. In fact, this is how Jesus prays in John chapter 17. After Jesus had taught, he looked toward heaven and in verse 1 and 2 and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. Jesus has authority because it's given him by his Father. And with that authority, Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus has authority. Paul, the Apostle Paul, points this out in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through to 18. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He is supreme over all creation. Everything has been created through him and for him. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. Christ, as God, has all the authority that God has, including authority over the lives of his chosen people. 
But why is authority important? Why do we need to consider the authority of Jesus Christ? Well, this is what C.S. Lewis sums up in Mere Christianity. It's a quote that we know so well. If you've ever read uh, C.S. Lewis, if you've not yet read Mere Christianity, I would encourage you to go and read that book. But C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to do so. Not only is Jesus not simply a wise moral teacher, he is also not someone who was mistakenly followed and unwillingly put into that position had a, an interesting conversation with somebody just this past week about the theological value of Monty Python's book, The Life of Brian. Sorry, the movie, The Life of Brian. It's not great viewing. I, I'm not recommending it, not by any stretch of the imagination. But in the movie, Brian is mistaken for the Messiah. And, and it kind of retells things he has to do in, in response to this. And he's unwilling and he's pushed into it. Jesus knew exactly who he was. It was not an unwilling step. Jesus knew he was God. He knew as the son of God he had authority. And so he spoke and he did and he acted from that authority and from that position. Jesus has the ultimate and final claim because he is the ultimate and final authority. It doesn't matter really whether we agree with that or disagree or whether we believe that or not. I preached a sermon a couple of years ago saying what you believe doesn't matter. And that was my title. And as you can imagine, a few uh, people were a little bit concerned about where I might go with that. And actually, ultimately, where I went was Jesus is Lord. You, you will bow and declare him as Lord, whether you like it or not. Because Jesus has authority. So how do we respond? If Christ is and has all authority, how do we respond? Well, Jesus points that out in verses 23 and 28. Authority demands obedience. Authority demands obedience. Imagine it in this way. Imagine you're driving along and somebody steps out in front of you in the road and, and kind of flags you down and he's just dressed in normal clothing, maybe a little bit like what I'm wearing today. And he tries to tell you that he's a police officer. And he has no badge, he has no identification, no police cruiser, no uniform. Are you going to listen to him? No. 
you're going to keep on driving. But if a little while later a, a real police officer in uniform with a police cruiser steps out and stops you, you are compelled to stop. Because that officer has authority. And as long as that officer, of course, obeys the law themselves, but speaks to you and issues lawful commands, you are compelled to respond to those commands. Which always blows me away when I see videos from our southerly neighbors of people who refuse to comply with police officers and then wonder why it ends up badly for them. Because authority demands obedience. I cannot pick and choose. I cannot decide that, no, I don't want to obey authority. Authority demands obedience. In this account, even the demons understand the authority of Jesus. And they obey him. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8, there's an interesting account in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 29 where Jesus casts out some demons. But in verse 29, one of the demons speaks out and says, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? You see, they understood that Christ had authority. They understood that their time was done and that they would suffer. And they knew there was a timeline. But even there they had to obey the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, says to his disciples in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples. Elsewhere Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commands. I'm busy reading A.W. Tozer's book, How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit. And in it he says, God gives his Holy Spirit to them that obey him. Are you ready to obey and do what you are asked to do? What would that be? Simply to live by the scriptures. Simple, but revolutionary. To hear and to do the word of God. To be obedient to Christ's instruction to us. To follow the word and to obey. Authority for us, for you and I, belongs to God, our creator. He made us to know, to love and to serve him. And his way of exercising his authority over us is by means of the truth and wisdom of his written word. And that's what Scripture now does for us. Scripture functions precisely as the very word and the instrument of Christ's lordship over us. It blows me away that there are those who call themselves disciples of Christ, those who call themselves followers of Jesus, who refuse to yield to the authority of Jesus and who refuse to obey the word of God. It's almost like they've invited Jesus in to the living room of their life. And they've tried to keep the rest of the, the house out of order or out of access, sorry. And Jesus says, no, when I come in, I have authority over the entire house. And I speak and I command. So where do we go with this? What's the deal on a discussion about authority? What do I do with this? How do I live? How do I respond? A couple of years ago, I was invited to speak to a, a philosophical group on authority. And I made the point that all of us 
yield to authority in one way or another. Even those who would say, no, I am my own boss. I do what I want to do. No, you don't. There is an authority driving you. It might be the pursuit of pleasure. It might be the avoidance of pain. It might be the material pursuit of more. It might be success. It might be trying to appear to be more than who you are. It might be trying to earn the blessing and favor and respect and love of somebody else. But the point being, every single one of us yields to authority whether we like it or not. And that authority already demands obedience and we obey whether we like it or not. And as Jesus introduces himself to us, and as Luke records this for us, it soon becomes apparent that the final and ultimate authority is Jesus Christ himself. And he is good. And he is love. And so he invites us to yield and to submit to him that we might find life, that we might find blessing, that we might enjoy him forever. For indeed, as has been said before, our hearts are restless until they make their home in him. What authority are you yielding to? What authority are you being obedient to? My friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ has all authority. Let us learn to yield to him and to submit to his word. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we read your word... We quickly discover that it is not merely word on page. It is the very word of God. And it is useful and profitable and beneficial. And your word indeed has authority. Father, for those of us who have been yielding to a separate authority. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to realize just how fruitless that is. For those who pursue their own, oh God, show them that there is a better way in you. And Jesus, this morning, as you would stand before each one of us, You would remind us, as your word does, that we are either for you or we are against you. There is no neutral middle ground. And so that invites us to respond. Will we accept you as Lord? Will we declare you as Lord and will we yield and submit to you as Lord? Or will we reject you? Jesus, I pray that by your Holy Spirit right now, you would remind each one of us and invite each one of us to once again submit to you and to repent and to receive life because only you can give life. Only you have the words of life because only you are life. 
God be glorified, for Jesus is Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.